0: You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. And today, we're sharing an interview Tom recently had with Kathryn Prince, Senior Director of Strategic Foresight at KnowledgeWorks. Recently, KnowledgeWorks released a paper that we'll be sure to include a link to in the show notes for you, that forecasts key characteristics of future work and proposes a framework for redefining readiness to help all learners prepare for the new employment landscape. We've been publishing a lot about the importance of student readiness on the blog lately because we all know we're looking at a generation who will graduate and take jobs that don't even exist yet. So how do we get them ready for this? Let's listen in as Tom and Catherine chat more about how, knowing that no one can actually predict the future, she and her colleagues are working to help education leaders make strategic decisions in the field based on informed predictions.
1: Catherine Prince uh, from KnowledgeWorks, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Catherine, you're the uh, Senior Director of Strategic Foresight. I think that's an unusual title in philanthropy. Why does uh, KnowledgeWorks have such a a strong commitment to to foresight and understanding the future?
2: Um, We think that because um, foresight is in a really important capacity to bring to the field of education, to help education stakeholders in various settings think more strategically about how changes in the external environment as well as longer term changes within the education sphere could impact our organizations and, and what we achieve for learners. So we came to foresight as ourselves at a point when we were a relatively young organization and wanted to guide a strategic planning effort. And from there realized the value of using forecasts to inform our the field's thinking about not just what's possible or plausible for the future, but what we might actually want to create. So we we use this work very much to help inform people's thinking about how they want to be active agents of change and creating the future. How does one
1: prepare for a a career as a a futurist? You and your colleague, uh, Jason Swanson, have some formal training in this space, right?
2: That's right. There are a few institutes of higher education in the U.S. and around the world that specifically offer training in strategic foresight. So Jason, for example, had the master's in the field from the University of Houston, and I came to it in a more haphazard way um, with a strategy and creative problem-solving background first and then um, was able to do a professional certificate there. Right. So that's a lot people usually do a combination of formal education and, and lived experience on the job.
1: You know, I'm a, an old energy finance guy, and this... Uh, scenario planning and the like really did originate with uh, in the oil business. And I guess Royal Dutch Shell was n- known for many years for scenario planning. Is that at least one version of the origin story?
2: It is. That That's an early and widespread example of, of using one of the key tools of strategic foresight, foresight, scenario planning, to help inform an organization's thinking about what's possible and, and how they want to um, response landscape, and now there are kind of multiple approaches to strategic to, um, scenario planning, as well as other techniques that people bring into play when doing this kind of work.
1: Is is it fair to say that um, that it's getting harder to be a, a futurist? Our our friend um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb would say there's more and more of these black swan events, things completely outside of our forecast envelope, and that seems to be true in the weather and the price of gas and our politics and technology. Do do you get that sense?
2: I do. I mean, even just the other day, my neighbor was making a similar observation to me about in the world of politics, but I really do um, think that the world is getting more complex and it's making it harder for all of us to see Patterns uh, or to anticipate the rate at right. which change will occur. Um, you know, we definitely think a lot about in our, our work about um, the exponential rate of change that's been emerging, and um, have had to ask ourselves questions as we frame out our projects. You know, in terms of how often do we do what kind of work. Um, so some of it we think about not just in terms of forecasting content, although, of course, that's possible. That's part of it. We're wanting to help people see kind of multiple possible futures when we look at any particular topic or do a general education forecast. But we're also help, trying to help the field kind of build its capacity for thinking about navigating change, um, knowing that we're all seeing different rates of change and that nobody's nobody um, is going to anticipate everything. And, you know, we're really trying to help people consider might what might happen in order to make more informed st- strategic decisions knowing that nobody can predict the future especially not in such turbulent times
1: well let's talk about what's happening what when you think about the the sort of new landscape out there what are the uh, four or five drivers that, that you see impacting life on earth
2: one of the biggest ones at this time is the rise of smart machines right machines with cognition, uh, machines that are capable of performing increasingly complex tasks, both non-routine um, cognitive and non-routine non-cognitive tasks. Um, and we think that those smart machines, which might be our ordinary devices, such as our sm- smartphone or our computer, but with more power in them, or might be new kinds of devices, are really um, are increasingly going to become our partners so that we're um, as they become smaller and more connected and more wearable, we're using them in deeper and deeper ways to navigate our world. Um and we really think that this is symbolic of a moment where we're entering a new era, what futurists describe as an um, a new era, where we sh- we shift from kind of one paradigm to another. And in this case, we think of it as a a change in the dominant era of production in our economy and society, and other we call that in our Fourth comprehensive forecast, a new era of partners in code. But others are calling that the fourth industrial revolution. Um, so, as part of that shift, too, we're seeing changing employment structures, so the decline of full time employment as the central organizing principle for how we um, approach work. And you're seeing, as part of that, the rise of project based work, either within or outside of organizations. We're seeing shorter and shorter employment tenure, the average. Employment tenure is already down to less than three years um, per organization for those employed full-time in organizations. And we're also seeing increasing taskification of work. So breaking down larger tasks into smaller components that could be potentially managed algorithmically and completed by people who are distributed um, across the globe. Right, Um, sort
1: of the Uberization of work.
2: That's right. That's right. That's a a big shift. Um, and that then if we think about forecasting that out 10 or more years, that increasingly invites us to consider the potential that we'll be, um, managing more and more activity through platforms rather than through traditional organizations. And that could be certainly work. Um, and one of our scenarios in our recent deep dive into the future of readiness really details one way that could look. Um, but that kind of platform based or, um, management of activity could extend into other domains as well different aspects of of yeah. learning living
1: i just finished a draft uh, book called platform networks and it does it makes that observation that we are increasingly living learning working and playing on platforms all the biggest companies in the world are now platforms
2: yeah, and I think this is—we're really seeing this. We're at this moment as part of this era shift and this shift toward more of a platform-based world, to a time when um, many of our traditional institutions, such as our education institutions, are straining to adapt to the new climate, and where, and some of our institutions are fraying and getting reconfigured or or dis- disintermediated, as we've already seen with media and publishing and and other sectors. So we're, we're seeing kind of this institutional shift and also a, a cultural shift that's responding to those possibilities and I think also pushing them. Um, and I think here particularly of the move toward a more distributed and transparent culture, attempts to have more shared authority, um, as well as the cultural shift toward increasing customization and in people more and more expecting that they're able to engage in experiences that align with their personal value sets and that they find meaningful and relevant um so really trying to 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 find their customized experiences of uh experience of of domains that we used to think were kind of institutionally given
1: right it's interesting how that expectation of customization um spreads across our lives right we experience it in one place and and then expect it in another
2: yes And, and you know and with I think we're in a time when we need to be asking questions for education of how much do fads like that or or shifts like that that might be more enduring than fads, you know, how how much should they impact traditional institutions? And we certainly, as an organization, are strong advocates for having meaningful, personalized learning be available to all young people. But it's also, I think, education's in this really tricky place of being... you know, one of the education institutions that sometimes is right to change more slowly than you know, commerce or fashion, but um, maybe it not equipped to change as quickly as it needs to, given how the world is evolving around it. So um, race invites a lot of hard questions. Uh,
1: let's come back to that. Let's um, shift to talk about some of the implications. We, we've talked a little bit about some of the trends, but Let's uh, dive a little more deeply in first into the the work implications. Uh, your new report, which is terrific, it's called "Redefining Readiness from the Inside Out." It identifies um, four or five really interesting um, changes in the nature of work. And the the first one is that it uh, work will be more market driven and user centered. What
2: what does that mean? Yeah. So that means that given these trends um, in technology that we've already talked about, as well as trends toward globalization, we're seeing an expansion of the middle classes and the opening of new markets around the world. So we've got massive data helping um, organizations get new insight into market niches, have more opportunities to design really targeted goods or services or experiences. Um, And then organizations really um, having all this information at hand and in order to be able to reposition themselves quickly, shift focus. So we um, we think that work in general—we're um, not speaking necessarily of education specifically—but work is increasingly going to be driven by shifting markets and this this push toward um, offering user-centered value.
1: And along with that, it the work will be more data-driven, more metrics-driven, right? In the age of big data. Um, we and our our colleagues and our employers are measuring everything uh, cycle time and, and output quality, the nature and type and frequency of relationships. So everything's becoming more and more metric and data-driven
2: absolutely. And you know it's I think it's sometimes easier to think about that in regards to organizational goals and you know trying to right. find the market fit that, that I mentioned earlier. but um, we can expect to that our individual performance will be increasingly quantified at work.
1: It in every possible way, right? When we click out uh, or when we check in, and and how many times we interact with other people, and in what fashion, right? I, I think a level of monitoring and surveillance that uh, sort of unprecedented, it, and could be quite useful, but it's also a little creepy.
2: It is. I mean, it's a it's a real cultural shift. Um, And it it could be useful for driving kind of a continuous improvement, helping to inform ongoing learning. But I don't think most of us are kind of used to working in that environment. And um, that that cultural shift could actually be harder and more profound than acquiring new technical skills or new situational skills. I think so,
1: Catherine. Um, Last week, I wrote a a blog on the way, A.I., is changing the human resource and talent development sector. It's interesting, every day we see a new story from new AI applications in that space. And uh, these are, um, on one hand, encouraging, it'll help us all be smarter about making a good match with a company uh, around a job or a project, but it, it definitely will increase uh, data collection and surveillance. so it's um, it's something that we need to
2: keep in mind. yeah, and I think its it raises a tension with one of the other future future work characteristics, which is that even as all this is happening, which I know I personally respond to is thinking, well, it's going to be less relationship based. Well, actually, we're also seeing that work is going to be need to be really grounded in relating that right. um, you know alongside that data, the the relationships are really going to help us. Also make those connections, determine success, work well toward goals. Um, you know, and that we're we're seeing work be increasingly collaborative, collegial, team-driven, and that that's we expect that to continue even as um, there's more data swirling around all of us, and some of the matching and the screening might be more automated.
0: You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we're chatting with Catherine Prince of Knowledge Works. We talk on the blog about life with smart machines, how on one hand it's more data and more automation, but on the other hand, we continue to come back to the importance of relationship skills still being a key to success. Tom asked Catherine to talk more about this paradox and what it means for the future of learning and redefining readiness. We hear a lot of concern as we talk about prospects for the future of learning.
2: Um, with given how dominant technology is as a driver of change at this time in our history, and there's a lot of um, well placed concern that we find the right balance between when we use technology to support people, and there's fear that technology will replace people. And um, you know, in learning, I think it's it's really important to remember that those relationships are at the core, and um, that kind of a a given, and then it's kind of what else what or what alongside is going to be helpful in supporting people and developing to their fullest potential.
1: And on that subject, as work becomes more and more modularized, um, it, it is going to be increasingly interwoven with learning, right? It, a lot of just-in-time uh, learning will take place.
2: Absolutely. You know, so we derived these future work characteristics that were in the paper from some ethnographic research uh, with people working in leading edge companies today or other settings, and um, a lot of them talked about being given a project, having no idea how to approach it, and just you know they had to figure it out. And um, yep. very much in time on their own, you know, up to them to be resourceful and and find the right resources or the right mentors who could help them rise to the challenge. And we do expect that to continue.
1: I want to come back and underscore that when we we close on the education, but I I am frequently these days encouraging people to create that productive anxiety that you talked about. You get a big complicated project and you have that, I have no idea how to do this, what do I do next, Uh, feeling, and I'm afraid that... um, with ed reform and even blended learning have have sort of reinforced school as routine and compliance and work is increasingly the opposite. It's novelty and complexity. And so how to create more experiences where young people have that productive anxiety of, I have no idea how to do this project. What do I do next?
2: And who do I need to figure it out with?
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, before we talk about education, let's um, just touch on some of the social implications. And I, I know that's not the, the primary focus of your paper, but when you think about the changing employment landscape, the changing technology landscape, what are a couple of the social implications we should uh, keep an eye out for?
2: Sure. You know, I think one of the biggest uncertainties as we looked ahead at what the future of work could mean for readiness is the degree to which Society will or will not coordinate a response to help right. people through this transition time. So, will we will we create some kind of coordinated response similar to the New Deal type, you know, for our times, or will we will we approach the transition in a more laissez-faire way where people are more left to navigate on their own? So, I think that that critical uncertainty kind of underlies more specific implications, uh, which. For me, it really lie around the degree to which people who are already in the workplace will have support in transitioning to new kinds of work or to new kinds of employment structures. You know, can, will we transition that quickly enough for those people and give them the right kinds of support? Um, I think there's great potential as we look ahead for inequities to increase. Um, In some scenarios for the future of work, income could get even more disparate than it currently is. Um, we could see some scenarios to create such um, such demand for people to have just-in-time skills and just kind of scrape by, you know, uh, in, in maybe the most more extreme versions of kind of working the platforms in a highly automated situation that we could even see things like higher education become more elite in, instead of more accessible, which so many have been working toward of late, um, you know, we could see that it's just not possible for as many people to afford either the time or the money to invest in higher education. So that could create kind of further um, socioeconomic stratification. Um, I think there are some positive implications as well, whether or not we see significant technological displacement. Um, It's possible even in a high technological displacement world, that if we have enough support for people, things like universal basic income or other kind of social supports that give people a buffer against that dislocation, that we could see the potential for people to work in work in more meaningful ways, to, to make productive contributions to society, even if they're not work as we define it today, that are aligned with their interests and passions. In a lower displacement scenario, we could see Potentially, greater career mobility, um, so that people are are having more satisfying career growth over their lifetimes. You know, so I think it's it's kind of easy for me to see some of the negative implications of the changing nature of work, but important to consider too that even in scenarios that look really different from how work functions in and supports our lives today, um, there could be bright spots.
1: Yeah, I I appreciate you calling that out. And I, I like your uh, partners uh, with code metaphor. Uh, when, when we think about the future, we often talk about cause plus code, this new impact formula that combines a little bit of design thinking and project management and uh, data wrangling. But it, it's just becoming much more possible for young people in high school and college. Uh, to take on big problems and wrangle big data sets and aim smart tools at at big data sets and, and really create some amazing solutions and then create a, a, a social campaign around those solutions. So it, it's important that we take a balanced look at this and, and appreciate both the, the negative and the potential positive aspects. Again, the, the paradox of life with smart machines.
2: Yeah, it could be easier to to have that impact, and we could even see education shift more toward helping to educate deliberately for that impact so that we're really um, deliberately trying to help people develop their problem-solving capabilities and their innovation skills while they're in school, knowing that they're going to have some pretty complex challenges to tackle over the course of their lifetimes.
1: So let's uh, wrap up, Catherine, with this idea of redefining Readiness, when you look into the crystal ball, what are the the knowledge skills and dispositions that are gonna be most
2: important in the future? We think given the degree of complexity and uncertainty and the, the kind of wide range of possible futures around work that um, the best way for us to help people become ready for this new era, working alongside smart machines in, in new structures is to develop those aspects of ourselves, which are uniquely human. So really to orient education around most fundamentally helping people develop their emotion systems. So we put it um, the core of a new foundation for readiness that we propose, developing core social emotional skills. So individual awareness, knowing what I'm feeling, knowing how to regulate my emotions when I need to, how to shift from maybe distressing to more positive emotional state. Really developing deep self-knowledge so I understand myself as an individual, my strengths, my interests, um, where I can really have that, that deep knowledge as a foundation for leveraging it when I need to make more specific contributions to the world. And then social awareness, really developing deep empathy and knowing how to take others' perspectives in order to be able to connect strongly with people, develop those relationships that we spoke about as being so central and being able to cultivate kind of inclusive communities with people in different settings. So we think that's a real foundation for future readiness and then over, would overlay on top of that kind of other cognitive and metacognitive practices such as being able to think differently, solve problems, thrive in ambiguity and uncertainty, communicate and create with numbers. And then on top of those kinds of things, of course, we still need to be learning more specific skills. We need to be acquiring certain kinds of content you know, just to be educated, or 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 for specific context, but we think that focus on really developing ourselves as people is going to be essential for this this future because we can all be expect to be reskilling and upskilling for new settings as we go through our lives and careers. Um, but we need to think about helping people kind of um, be strong in those areas that are hard to code. Yep. Um, you know, really think about kind of what's unique unique about people. It's going to be, and how can we develop that so that we're really helping sure that, making sure that everybody can bring their unique human qualities to work alongside our smart machine partners.
1: That's a really great summary, Catherine. Um, in a recent blog, um, you you talked about just being reflective about this yourself and Thinking about how you could improve your own resilience, um, you closed that blog by talking about storytelling and uh, and and why that might become more important. Tell us a little bit about your thinking there. Yeah,
2: you know, I think it's um, we were we were joking. Sometimes, even as a futurist, I have my freakout moments, and and one of those is about working in a highly platform based world. But I think part of it for me and is that. It, in that or other possible futures, um, I want to get better at telling the story of what I've accomplished and the journey I've been on in ways beyond the traditional resume or, you know, traditional kind of interview structure, that kind of thing. You know, I think in light of the database um, world that we're going to be experiencing and um, the more automated matching that we expect is going to be likely with talent management, Um, but also just in terms of kind of showing transferable skills in a, in a, in a story. Um, Yeah. I feel like if I think there's a really practical advantage to getting better at showing that kind of portfolio work and learning across my lifetime, but also I think it's, um, it feels like a reassuring tactic to me too, that, you know, that world of that more automated world can feel pretty frightening sometimes. And I think, um, remembering that I also have a say in how I craft that story about what I've accomplished and how I've contributed over my career um, feels not just like something I can do, but something that would be um, would connect with the kinds of ways we're seeing work change.
1: It's a beautiful way to end, Catherine. Um, we appreciate your foresight, and we appreciate Knowledge Works commitment to this. It's unique in in our sector and uh, important to so many of us so thanks for your time today and your insights and your recent uh, blogs and reports
0: thank you for the opportunity to chat tom i appreciate it Thanks to Catherine Prince for speaking with us today and to Tom for another great interview. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Kat signing off.